Hi, and welcome to episode 31 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Jill Rabin joining us. Jill is a pediatric speech-language pathologist and international board-certified lactation consultant that has been working with infants to three-year-olds for the past 33 years. Her areas of specialty are facilitating breastfeeding in at-risk populations like preterm babies and babies with Down syndrome, using modified baby-led weaning to transition babies with special needs to solids and using child-directed feeding approaches to improve feeding skills in infants and babies with feeding aversion. Jill has contributed two chapters in the book, Breastfeeding and Down Syndrome, and has written three blog posts about breastfeeding and Down Syndrome on the juliasway.org website. She's also written an essay and was quoted in the 10th anniversary edition of Gil Ripley and Tracy Merquette's Baby Led Weaning Book. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Vulcan. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Thank you, Jill, so much for joining us today. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and talking about some of my favorite things. Yes. Well, let's dive right on in and start talking about the importance of breastfeeding and the provision of breast milk for babies with special needs. Yes. So I love, love to talk about that subject. And I'm actually, I've been working with infants to three-year-olds primarily for 33 years. And for 20 of those years, I've been a lactation consultant. And to me, breastfeeding and provision of breast milk is important for any baby, but especially important for babies with special needs for so, so many reasons, not only um, because of the helpful properties of breast milk and how it it protects your immune system, but it's species-specific milk, it's digested faster, it's absorbed better. It's really what we want to be giving babies who are at risk for lots of medical issues. And besides what breast milk does to the body, also the way that the actual act of breastfeeding shapes the palate, strengthens the jaw, works on the muscles in the cheeks. We want to be doing all these things because breastfed babies are fed eight to 12 times in 24 hours. We're literally giving oral motor exercise to infants every time we feed them. So to me, this is the optimal and most ideal way to get babies with special needs to be, to be working on those skills. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that we're essentially working on those oral motor skills every time they feed. You're absolutely right, because that's what's the end goal of doing oral motor exercises if we're actually doing them to the baby, you know, it's so that they can functionally feed and use these these motor skills. So I think that's a really great point that um, I think people need to kind of just stop and take pause and think about that, you know, everyone says, you know, people say breast is best and obviously fed is best. We want to make sure the baby can get their nutrition. Um, but I think that there's a lot to be said about breastfeeding and just developing the oral facial structures and the way that they are meant to be developed. So I really love, you know, how you said that. Yes. And I do, and I would say too, a lot of times with babies with special needs, there's medical issues in the beginning when they're born and mom and baby is, they're often separated. So it is our job to make sure that we're protecting mom's milk supply until we can figure out what 
when the baby's ready and able to transfer to the breast. And we're going to probably have to use some bridges with some of these babies, such as a nipple shield or a supplemental nursing system with a lot of the babies I work with. I'm actually using a digital scale where we're literally looking at what the baby transfers. And that's how we note progress and that the baby is starting to be able to nutritively feed at the breast. So a lot of those things are important. And I think something really important to know about babies with Down syndrome is sometimes they literally will not establish breastfeeding until three months or later. Right. And a lot of medical professionals don't know that. And parents will give up way before that because they're sort of discouraged. Well, you know, your baby's not breastfeeding and your baby's six weeks. And I've seen babies with Down syndrome literally transition to, to exclusive breastfeeding between three to six months. Yes. So I think that we, everyone needs to be aware that sometimes we really just need to manage mom's supply and work with the baby and use some of those bridge devices until we can transition to exclusive breastfeeding. Interesting. And do you feel that that's related to their low tone and, you know, just general medical needs as a newborn? Yes, a hundred percent. Respiratory wise, cardiac. A lot of these babies with Down syndrome have cardiac issues. So sometimes once they've had surgery, they get a lot stronger and they're able to, to feed better. They, sometimes they're just really disorganized at the breast. It just sometimes takes a little bit of time for them to get there. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how babies with this particular population can do that with a lot of neurotypical babies. They don't do that. If they've had bottles, they will not go back to the breast. But with this population, I have found that yes, they can do it. So fascinating and really, really interesting. I have, um, I've worked with little ones with Down syndrome who've had tongue ties and who have, you know, had some feeding challenges, even still at three years of age. And, you know, it's, but they are a very, they're a fun population to work with. I thoroughly enjoy it. I think that it, they can make so much progress. And like you said, it's sometimes it's the timing. It's the timing of when their systems are ready, what other medical issues need to be dealt with first. Um, and I think that's very encouraging, especially if there are any parents that end up listening to this uh, that have children with special needs or especially Down syndrome. It's very encouraging to hear that, yes, even though you have not been able to breastfeed your first, you know, couple of months, three months, um, there's still a chance that we can get the baby on the breast and have them successfully feed despite having been, you know, bottle fed for the, the first three months of their life. So I think that's a phenomenal tip. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, And I think too, we can talk a little bit later, but I did contribute to a book called Breastfeeding and Down Syndrome. And there's a website called juliasway.org. I don't get any payment from this book or, or from talking about it, but it's, it's a resource for parents and professionals. And we even have a free download that um, parents can have because we want to make sure this information is accessible to everybody, but it's specifically about that population. And it really talks about how to transition a baby with Down syndrome to breastfeeding and um, Ella Cullen, who is the editor of the book and has a daughter, Julia, with Down syndrome, she has a, some great videos on YouTube and she has a bunch of moms who all have babies with Down syndrome who had heart issues. And most of them were told that their babies would be unable to breastfeed. And there's a beautiful video with all of them on the beach and they're all toddlers and they're all still breastfeeding. And it tells each mom's story and it's, it's an amazing and really moving video to watch. Very cool. I, I definitely know people I will share that with. Thank you. <laughs> um, and we'll make sure that that's all in the show notes too, so that those resources are easily accessible um, for, for everybody. Yeah. So let's, let's also talk about, I mean, you're both, you're a speech language pathologist and an international board certified lactation consultant. So having that SLP and IBCLC to your name, can you talk a little bit about the importance? Um, I mean, since you are both, obviously you can do both, but for those of us who are not like myself, um, the importance of the collaboration between speech language pathologists and IBCLCs, you know, especially as it relates to these little ones. 
Absolutely. And I, I think that that is the collaboration piece is super, super important. I will say that I have some strong opinions about, um, there, you know, there's a lot of speech pathologists now who are we're trying to become IBCLCs. And I love that. And I welcome people getting information about breastfeeding. Obviously, the more that we know about breastfeeding and the more we promote it, the better. However, I see this big trend of people taking courses, you know, becoming certified lactation consultants, becoming certified lactation specialists. And I think we all have to remember that taking a two-day or a five-day course does not make us a specialist in anything. It's really getting the training and the practice and being mentored by people who have experience. And I am seeing this big trend of lots of speech pathologists going and, and getting this certification. And I think what we have to remember is that lactation consulting or IBCLCs, that's a profession. These are people that have been doing this for years who are specifically trained in working with lactation. And I think a lot of speech pathologists are taking their knowledge with bottle feeding and they're trying to transfer that to breastfeeding. And they're two very, very different things. And I also think that speech pathologists are, are very adept in managing the baby, but they don't really know how to manage the mom. And we have to manage a dyad when we're working with breastfeeding because without one, we can't have the other. So if you are not familiar with how to establish, help a mom establish a milk supply or maintain a milk supply, if you do not know the parameters of how to determine that a baby's transferring milk, if you are not familiar with all those bridge items that we use, such as nipple shields, supplemental nursing systems, pumps. If, if you're not familiar with those things, you're not going to be able to manage that dyad. So you have to be cognizant of that and you have to collaborate with those IBCLCs who really know how to manage both of those things. And I think together it can be an amazing collaboration, but I think that you have a lot of moms that are vulnerable who will look online and they'll say, oh, this person's a speech pathologist in a CLC or a CLS, and they don't understand the difference between that and an IBCLC. And they're going to tend to gravitate towards someone like that who really may not be able to manage the breastfeeding diet as well as an IBCLC with supplementive help from a speech pathologist. So I think we have to be really careful about who's managing these things that we have to admit when we don't know something that, okay, this is outside of my scope and I'm going to refer you to someone who can help. Because I do see a lot of cases where speech pathologists are more comfortable with bottles and they're going to push the dyad more in that direction because that's what they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I can speak to even, you know, and I'm the first one to say that I've been doing feeding for 10 years, but I have only been working with infants for a handful of years. Like I, I'm newer to, and I still consider myself newer to working with infants. Um, most infants come to me because they've been working with an IBCLC and the IBCLC refers them because, you know, they've, they've done what they can do at this point, but they feel like something more is going on with the infant. And so I completely agree with you that we have to absolutely collaborate because I do not have that background. Like you said, with the SNS and the nipple shield and maintaining mom's supply and knowing what supplements she can take or what medications might be safe during breastfeeding or, you know, there's, I get a lot of questions surrounding those topics. And I'm the first one to say, this is not my area. <laughs> this, is out of, this is out of my scope. I am not trained in this. Please go back and talk to your, you know, IBCLC that referred you to me. Um, but I think what's, what can be a really beautiful collaboration is like you said, when we know our limitations, we, when we know what's in scope of our knowledge, but even if you've taken a, a week long class and they've taught you a lot of this, but it's not something that's second nature to you. And you're really not that specialist. And this is a mom who's in a very, delicate situation because we're in our fourth trimester of 
hormones and just trying to keep our baby alive. And, you know, I'm, I'm a mom of two and I had two very different breastfeeding experiences with my daughters and they both had tongue ties and they were both dealt with at different, you know, and lip ties and both were done, dealt with at different points of infancy and toddlerhood. Um, and so I can relate to a, a parent and I think that's why parents are very receptive to me, but I'm very, very quick to say, this was my experience. However, I cannot guide you on, you know, what to do as far as weighing a baby before and after a feed. I'm not trained in that. I don't have a skill in my home office. You know, I, I want you seeing that IBCLC or renting a skill for your home. So you know how much your infant is transferring and talk to your IBCLC you know, and they'll ask me, well, how much should in the infant be transferring? I'm not trained in that. So again, go back to your IBCLC. What I can help you do is I can help you, you know, create a treatment plan to develop the baby's oral motor skills. And I can help you determine if the suck, swallow, breathe pattern is working properly, whether baby's on breast or bottle. However, I am not, when I'm looking at mom breastfeeding the baby, I'm not looking at mom, I'm looking at baby. Yeah. And so I think that's really, really important um, distinction because I also think these, these moms are very tired and they're very, they're frustrated. They can't feed their baby. It's upsetting. It's, you know, they feel like they're, they're failing and they feel like it's their fault. Um, and, and, you know, I'm always the first one to say, no, this is, this is not you, this is the baby. And this is, you know, a reaction of your body to the baby. However, that's why working, I think it's, it's so important. Like you said, it's so important, the collaboration, because if we try to do it all and we don't have the skill level or it's not within the scope of what we're actually trained in or our level of experience to guide that, that mother with her baby, we're doing them a major disservice. And, you know, and then I really feel like it, it can fall back on the fault of the practitioner if that mother is not successful in feeding the baby, but you are not able to come forward and say, I don't have experience or enough experience, or I'm new to this, please also speak with, you know, this person, let's bring this IBC LC into the picture and, you know, collaborate with her. Um, Cause I, I get on the phone with my IBC LCs oftentimes and I read their reports and um, I'm very lucky that there are some nice, really wonderful practices around me in the DC Metro area who do extremely thorough reports to the point where sometimes I get these kids and I'm like, I know exactly what I need to look for in their mouths. Or I know exactly, you know, and, and then we're able to support each other in the process. So um, I'm glad that that's, you know, a topic we're discussing because I think it needs to be heard loud and clear that, you know, that dyad, there's a dyad here. It's not just mom. It's not just baby. There is a dyad. And if you are not a specialist for both individuals in that dyad, you know, stay in your lane and pull in that other specialist. A hundred percent. I think also too, something that we often see as speech pathologists because we're so used to working with physical therapists and occupational therapists, I'll often notice a head tilt or tonal issues yes. or head shape issues that lactation consultants might not see. You know, it, it really obviously depends on the lactation consultant, but I think as speech pathologists, because our orientation is working with teams that we see some of those motor things and we know, we know that we have to refer. And yes. you can also imagine how frustrating it's, it's hard enough for moms with babies that are neurotypical imagine these moms trying to breastfeed with babies who are having respiratory issues, GI issues, or they have a diagnosis and they're, they're trying to deal with learning that diagnosis after the baby is born. So there's, there's so many things we have to do. I, I feel like sometimes I have to be a psychologist, a speech yes. pathologist, a lactation consultant, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and 
then you're getting all this input from social media and parents get a lot of incorrect information from their peers. And I love the support of the peers, but oh my gosh, social media is a blessing and a curse. Yes. Because yeah. I think that parents get a lot of incorrect information and you're really, sometimes you're spending a lot of time trying to educate them about the misinformation they've heard from not only their peers, but also from medical professionals. Yes. Oh yeah. And I'm a big, um, I actually have been pulling back myself from those groups because when I'm in there, I'm constantly going, we can't diagnose by pictures and we, I, we don't know unless we assess your child and that involves somebody getting in your child's mouth or looking at how your, your baby's feeding on you, mom. And, you know, and I think it's, it's wonderful that there is a support, like you said, of the other parents and there's these supportive communities. Um, I think that professionals need to, and this is my opinion, but I think professionals, if they're in those groups need to refrain from giving out medical advice and basically saying, hey, where are you located? Let me see if I can connect you with a provider in your area that I can vouch for, which is oftentimes people will tag me on Facebook or send private messages and connect me with a parent who's in, like last night I was connected with somebody who's in um, North Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> and, you know, and I was able to get her names of providers in that area, both a release provider and an IVCLC and a speech language pathologist. And, you know, what they do with the information from there is on them. But, you know, my, my goal is to be a connector of people and help people find the right support and help them find the right resources. Um, because I could have easily said, oh, send me a pic, a video of your baby. That, but that's also illegal. I'm not, I'm not licensed in your state. I can't assess your baby. Um, but I know people are doing that. And that to me is a little bit scary because as speech pathologists, we are dictated, you know, our license is restricted to the states that we, our practice is restricted to the states, I should say, that our licenses are in. And so we cannot do telepractice unless we're licensed in, you know, the various states that we're we're speaking between um, and treating between. But anyways, I digress. Um, but yes, I know there's just so much of that that goes on. And I think people kind of forget like this is social media. This is not a medical group. And we're doing, I think we're also doing a major disservice to families by trying to dispense quick, helpful tips um, in these Facebook groups first, you know, and, and there's a lot of soliciting of service too, you know, yeah. so I, th I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bad thing. So we have to be yeah. super, super careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a bit more about baby led weaning um, because I know kind of transitioning from the breastfeeding and we can always come back to breastfeeding if there's more, but I know baby led weaning is one of your topics. And I know that you also help with um, modifying it too for the needs of your, your patients. Yeah. So, so baby led weaning, which is a child directed feeding approach. And this, this, term was coined by Jill Rapley and Tracy Merquette from the UK. And Jill Rapley and I, we've actually become friends through this process of baby lead weaning. And I can explain that in a little bit, but it's the natural progression to go from from breastfeeding to baby led weaning because they're both child directed feeding approaches. And, you know, babies that breastfeed, they determine what they need and they stop feeding when they're full. And baby led weaning is a very similar way of, of eating. You present the food, the baby determines how much they're going to eat and whether they're going to eat it or not. And I, uh, about six years ago, a lactation consultant that I work with had gone to a conference where Jill Rapley was the speaker and she hands me a DVD that Jill had produced and she said, you know, you really should watch this. It's really, really interesting. So I took it home 
and yes, there were still DVD players and people were watching DVDs at that point. And I was fascinated by this approach of teaching babies to transition to solids. And then I read Jill's book and, and she had a quote in her book that talked about how children with special needs would probably have difficulty with transitioning to solids using this approach, but it could perhaps be very therapeutic. And that really stuck out in my mind. And I thought, wow, this, this is super interesting. And I work with so many kids with Down syndrome and they really struggle with the self-feeding piece. And, and very often kids with Down syndrome are spoon-fed by an adult for a long time. And they really have no active participation in, in feeding at all. And being low muscle tone, it, you really want to encourage as much hand to mouth as possible. So what I did is I started taking the baby led principles and I modified them to the oral motor and feeding skills and hand to mouth skills of, of babies with low tone. And I use little bridge devices such as a silicone feeder. I do something called preloaded spoons. And what I do is I teach parents how to feed their babies and modify that baby led weaning approach. So we might still do purees, but it's directed by the baby. We put it in a special feeder and we help the baby guide the, the feeder to their mouths. And, and that is how I transition them. And the reason also that I love this baby led weaning approach is it also works on your oral structures. You're doing a lot more biting and moving food in your mouth. And, you know, there's so much information out there now. There's a great book called The Hidden Epidemic, which talks about how people have smaller jaws. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, tethered oral tissues and people having open mouth postures when they're sleeping, little babies with open mouth posture, um, us eating softer foods. We're not chewing and biting and pulling and eating more difficult foods. I'm a perfect example of that. I never just pick up an apple and eat it. I always use a slicer and cut it into smaller pieces. So they're saying that we have smaller jaws because of our diet and our softer diet that we eat. So my thought is if we can get young babies starting to eat real foods from the beginning and biting and pulling solid food strips, we're going to be working on a lot more of those of that strength and also changing the structure of the face besides doing baby led weaning, when I'm working with infants, I know that breastfeeding is helping to shape the palate because the breast will help the baby develop more of a U-shaped palate. And it's also going to really help with opening your airway because if you have a more U-shaped palate, you have a closed mouth resting posture, you're going to shape your whole face and change everything. You're breathing uh, you know, your, your musculature. So I feel like between breastfeeding and teaching parents to get their babies to have a closed mouth resting posture and using a modified baby led weaning approach is really going to help change the oral structural development of these babies. Yeah. And I, I would agree with, with what you said that I think that the earlier we can get them using those structures, the better. And obviously, like you've said a couple of times, breastfeeding does that for, mm -hmm. you know, for the oral structures, but I, I love the tips and how you, you mentioned that you modify the baby led weaning for them. And so, you know, you like the preloaded spoons, which is something that sounds similar to what I do and really encouraging that self-feeding and what, whichever way that you can, bringing the hand to the mouth, bringing the food, you know, to the mouth and encouraging more lateralization of the tongue and the chomping of the, you know, molars. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about that, especially in these kiddos who have lower tone and who it's just easy for them to be fed by somebody else. And, you know, and it, may take longer for them to eat in general. So being fed by somebody else usually speeds that up. So it's, it's hard to break that cycle for people who, you know, kind of get stuck in that. And also then the child is not developing those oral facials, right. you know, they're, muscle. They're learning to swallow. They're learning to swallow. And someone's putting food in their mouth, they're learning to swallow versus move food in their mouth. I also think another amazing plus of doing this baby led approach is 
food will become a motivator. And if they've been doing this hand to mouth for six months, what the impact they see is amazing because not only does it impact you know, it engages their core every time they lean forward and pick up a spoon and bring it to their mouth or, or they reach front on, onto the tray and pick something up and bring it to their mouth. It, when, when you're doing that so frequently and engaging the core and doing that hand-to-mouth behavior, what I find with a lot of these babies, again, especially babies with Down syndrome, is that they, they learn to use their hands better. They play better. They have better attention span because they've been literally using their hands-to-mouth for six months where a lot of other babies with Down syndrome are just being spoon fed by an adult for six months. So it really gets them actively participating in the feeding process. And I, I really feel like it would be a great study to see if babies who are with Down syndrome who are fed are, are in this way where they're doing that hand to mouth and self feeding. If you see higher skills with fine motor and, and being able to attend mm. than you would in babies that are fed by an adult. Mm. Yeah, that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like thinking of my own patients and I'm like, huh, <laughs> I have to go back and think about that one. Um, so let's talk a little bit about baby, le- well, let's continue to talk about baby led weaning, but can we talk a little bit about the misunderstanding and why some health professionals think that baby led weaning is dangerous? And because I know that it's definitely a controversial topic. <laughs> yes, it, it is. And I'm going to go back again to social media because there's a lot of stuff on social media. And I also, I kind of, I'm a voyeur on a lot of uh, Facebook pages of parents with baby led weaning. And, and it is a little scary. I do think that obviously your typical parent is not going to understand this, you know, skills the way that we would as speech pathologists. I mean, I can pick a food based on the skill level of that baby. And I, and I do want to go back a little bit too and talk about how important it is to, I, I use the, um, Lori Overland and Robin Merkel-Walsh's sensory motor approach, and I do task mm-hmm. analysis and pre-feeding hierarchy. I'm doing things with babies from an oral motor perspective to prepare them for feeding. So I'm working on chewing way before they're actually going to have food in their mouths. So I feel like, you know, as speech pathologists, we're really good about knowing all those necessary foundational skills that are needed before you introduce a certain food texture, like a, like a real solid food texture. And we know that, you know, babies who are first learning are probably going to do better with a pureed texture or a soft, solid food texture. And I'm seeing a lot of babies online, their parents, the first food they're giving them is steak and, you know, and really difficult to break down foods. But I will say that a lot of baby led weaning in the first three months, it's not about nutrition. In, in, in intake in the first three months, it's about learning about food. So a lot of bringing food to your mouth and gnawing on food, that, that's part of that learning process. But we have to be super, super careful because there are people out there that don't understand what's texturally safe for a baby, especially a baby with special needs. And they're, they're presenting foods that are really not appropriate for that baby's level. And, and Jill Rapley's, her whole thing is about it being a child-directed approach and the baby eating with the family. And really what we do in the beginning is we modify the shape of the foods doing strips and things that are that are texturally safe for the baby and then we advance those those things as the baby's skills become more proficient and what you'll find is when you've had three months of really practicing and bringing foods to your mouth and moving them around in your mouth your skills are so much better by nine months that you can handle those more texturally complex foods but we have to be careful and especially with our kids with special needs that skill that skill foundation may take longer so we really have to make sure those foundational skills are in place before we start introducing foods that are too difficult for them. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I do see in these these baby led weaning groups where, you know, they're like, oh, my child just ate steak. And then you see these like huge chunks of meat that they've given the baby. And I'm like, your child actually chewed that or your child swallowed that whole, <laughs> you know, so and I think that's, you know, that's where I think other people then are concerned about like choking risks or well, I right. can't do that. My baby goes, well, yeah, because you're not supposed to give your baby a square chunk that we would chew as an adult, you're breaking, like you said, you break it down into strips or you break it into tinier little pieces that they can use their little pincer grasp to piss, you know, to pick up and, um, you know, manage on their back little molars or they don't have molars, but where their molars will grow in, you know, they can gum it. So yes, I think that the form of the food uh, is very important, you know, considering what they're being given. Right. And, and I do think that, you know, babies, especially neurotypical babies, they can do this pr pretty easily. And, and I do think that most babies, they, they will eject foods that they can't handle. But we have to be careful with our low tone kids who may not have the ability to sit up and eject something. And, you know, mm -hmm. they, they don't have the same skill base. And you can do this very, very safely. You just have to know what, what skills are needed to break down what textures. And I think that's the scary thing. And I think the one thing I want to say too, and Lori Overland and I just presented together at, at ASHA about this. And, and she talked about the importance that everybody needs to know CPR. You need to know because choking is, is a hazard with any baby, but we really want to make sure that we, we know what to do if, and we need to know the difference between gagging and choking because lots of babies do lots of gagging in the beginning and the gag, your gag reflex, it really starts very anteriorly. And as you become more of a proficient eater, it's going to move back posteriorly. So for us, we don't gag unless something's by our airway. So lots of people think that when a baby gags, that something's by their airway and really it's just that that gag will desensitize with practice. So yeah. I think that that's an important thing to know. I think the other important thing to know too, is there is literature out there that talks about the importance of babies getting some type of textured food by the time they're nine to 10 months, because if they've just been getting smooth liquidy puree type foods and, and that goes on for a long period of time, sometimes there is a big sensory response to texture. So we want to really make sure that we're, we're giving that exposure. And that's the lovely thing about baby led weaning is you're getting so you're getting lots of texture from the beginning and in, in learning to taste and, and move different types of food around in your mouth. Whereas babies who are spoon fed purees by an adult don't get that same type of sensory input into their mouths. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and you make a very good point because I think there's also a huge misconception between gagging and choking. And cause I will get a lot of parents who come to me and say, well, my child chokes on their food or, and these are sometimes my toddlers that I'm doing feeding therapy with. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, can you explain to me what happens or not? Or it'll happen in the office and I'll see what, and I'll say, well, they're actually not choking, which is a good thing. They're gagging. Um, and we talk about the differences and the signs of choking and, you know, just so that the parent can be more educated and a little bit, I think, feel a little bit calmer or <laughs> um, have a little bit more ease surrounding meal times, knowing that, you know, this is a gag, we can move that back. <laughs> like you said, yeah. it starts very anteriorly and, and in a toddler, it should be back already. Um, but you know, if they, if they didn't have some of those earlier experiences or sometimes if they're tongue tied and they're trying to manage some of these foods, what I actually see is a lot of these kids, because they're not able to lateralize the food around, you know, they tend to chew on one side of their mouth, they don't chew on both sides. And so I've even seen it where it's almost more asymmetrical, where like, well, if we put it over, it ends up on this side, they, it triggers a gag. Or um, if they, um, 
you know, I mean, basically if they can't chew the food properly or it's not going where it should go in their mouth to chew and then swallow properly, um, I tend to see heightened gag reflexes in a lot of my kiddos. And that's where you tend to see that more selective eating and they really cut the foods out that they feel are safe for them to eat. And they tend to be the softer foods, the more puree or soft solids, you know, something they can kind of mash with their tongue or chew with just a couple chews and swallow on back. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I also use Lori, um, Lori Overland's sensory motor feeding protocol. And um, I've taken a lot of Robin and Lori's courses and I think they're both phenomenal people. And I, that's, that's actually was my first course into feeding with Lori's, um, Lori's sensory motor course. And it's phenomenal. Unbelievable. Like knows the mouth, like nobody in this world. <laughs> and I think that with the, the special needs population, her information, it's so, it's, it's essential that you know this mm -hmm. because it can be really dangerous with, with the special needs population. And I will say too, getting back to the gagging piece, when babies do have tethered oral tissues, sometimes what I also see is if they get a piece of food, it gets stuck mid tongue and they gag like crazy because they can't get it over their lateral biting surfaces. And then yeah. they get scared and then they become aversive with yes. eating. So, and I, and I will say too, that a great thing about baby led weaning, it's a great way to feed babies because I find that babies who have feeding aversion, if you see any kind of aversive behaviors from zero to six months, if you do this more child directed pro approach with that population and they're really feeding themselves and sort of, you know, conducting the train, you, you can often eradicate that aversion from six to 12 months. It's a great way to work on feeding with them. So I use yeah. that approach with them a lot as well. I also agree with that. I've, I have seen that where, you know, some babies who have had a lot of vomiting episodes or they've had just, you know, airway issues, things that really made them pretty aversive. And, and interestingly enough, I've, we've actually seen, um, like I've had some children where they were, they became averse to the bottle and then we were able to get them back on the bottle mm -hmm. um, and they were no longer averse, but then we, you know, we introduced the solids and they weren't averse initially, but then they started to develop an aversion because the parent was feeding them. Yeah. And that's where I really had to do a lot of education on, okay, let's back it up and really take more of a baby led weaning approach because when baby's in control and baby can anticipate what's coming, when it's coming, have that control to feed when they feel ready, their sensory systems ready, their motor systems ready, all systems are kind of, you know, in check, um, much more successful. And that's why I'll even, I'll hear a lot of parents say to me, oh, well, you know, when they put it in their mouth, they're fine. But when I go to feed them, they just vomit all over the place. <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> that right there tells us, you know, maybe this baby led weaning is, we're onto something here. Um, really, it's something that, you know, especially, I think it really, because I do get a lot of questions from other speech pathologists in feeding realm, you know, how do you deal with these babies who have aversions? Well, we kind of put baby in the driver's seat and let baby <laughs> lead the way and tell us, you know, and really follow their cues and that they know when they're ready. They're not going to put something in their mouth that they feel like they can't breathe right now um, or their system, you know, is not primed for them to receive what's coming their way. Um, so yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And they trust themselves. You know, they yeah. know that either they, they can trust themselves. They don't know something coming at them, what they're going to do, if they're going to do too fast or put too much in their mouth. And it's really scary. I also wanted to quickly go back to, and that book that I mentioned earlier called Breastfeeding and Down Syndrome, I do have a chapter in that book about modified baby led weaning for parents and professionals. It's more, um, it's, it's not super, super in depth, but it kind of gives you a, a nice foundation. But there's a great chart in there that talks about the difference between gagging and choking. So awesome. that's a great reference. There, we have a great little chart in there that talks about what to look for. And I think it makes parents feel a little bit better when they can take a peek at that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And it is such an area that I think parents really 
stressed about, you know, they really are concerned like, no, nobody wants their child to choke. So it is a, it's a very valid concern to have. Um, but I think, yes, educating on the differences between that, um, that chart, I think would be a fantastic tool. So yeah, like I mentioned, we will definitely put that in the show notes and make sure, um, that everybody knows that there is a chart on that as well. Sure. Um, now let's talk about some other methods and ideas on how to facilitate modified baby led weaning. So we keep like referring to it. We've talked about it like a little bit, um, but you know, like let's talk more about like the seating or feeding equipment, you know, other ways that we modify. Okay, so um, the very first important piece is the motor piece. So I, what I tell parents a lot is, you know, they want to start solids and I'm looking at a baby who has no head control and can't even sit in supported sitting. So I think that they have to understand how, how what happens in the body is, is going to impact the mouth and feeding. And sometimes babies just are not physically ready, especially our babies with special needs. They sometimes need more time because their motor development is, is not ready yet to support doing feeding. So I think that's an important piece. And I think finding good seating is really, really difficult, especially for little ones with Down syndrome. They're so tiny. Uh, I did uh, see a really amazing chair called the Nomi when I was at um, ASHA. And that's a, a new chair chair that I'm trying. I actually won it in a little raffle thing and, and I donated oh, it to a, a center called Gigi's Playhouse here, which is for all babies with Down syndrome. So I'm going to be trying that with some of the kids. But I think supported sitting is so important and making sure that that baby has a good base of support before you start doing feeding. And I think a lot of times what happens is the tray's too high and the baby can't reach what's on the tray. So we really have to make sure that there's a place they can put their feet, that they're, they're supported nicely. And I often use, you know, work very closely with with my PTs and OTs and making sure that that baby is sitting well and is able to bring things hand to mouth. So that the seating piece is important. Also, I use different silicone feeders uh, and, and there's a couple that I use and I don't get paid by any of these companies. These are just products that I use. I'll use a kids me feeder, which is a silicone feeder that I like a lot I that has that. two handles. And I usually have the baby hold one handle and then I hold the other side and help them guide it to their mouths. There's also one called a, a nature bond feeder, which has different insertion sizes, which I like. There's a really tiny one, which is great for little mouths. And I will use those with babies. And I also, I like the Chumi spoons, which is a, a nice spoon with a flat bowl that has a little hole in the middle that you press the food into. And it's great because babies don't get frustrated because if you're using a regular spoon that has a deeper bowl and that baby brings it to their mouth, they cannot get the food out of the bowl of the spoon. And really when we're, we're doing preloaded spoons with babies and sticking it in like mashed potatoes or mashed sweet potatoes or mashed avocado, I'm not looking for the baby to scoop and, and feed like they're spoon feeding from a bowl. What I'm really using it as, is as a bridge to help them learn to bring their hands to their mouths. So once they're doing those preloaded spoons really well by me handing it to them and they bring it to their mouths, the next step is I will load the spoon and put it on the tray and let them lift it and bring it to their mouth. And then the next step after that is I'll just take an avocado or a banana and I'll mash it on the tray and literally let them pick it up with their hands and bring it to their mouth. But sometimes it takes them a while to do that. And then we move on to, to soft solid pieces of avocado, banana, sweet potato, and sometimes, again, it takes a while for babies, especially with special needs, to be able to pick things up off of, off of their tray and bring it to their mouths. But that's sort of the, the hierarchy of how I do it. And when I do pieces or soft, solid pieces, I'll often put it in my hand halfway between the tray and the baby's mouth. 
when the baby reaches for it with their hand, I help them guide it to their mouths. And I'm always doing this in a child-directed way. I'm never putting food in a baby's mouth or I'm never going towards their mouth if they're turning away or giving me no. So it's really guided by them. And then once they can do it by themselves, I don't have to do anything. They do it themselves. Yeah, no, and I think that's a really great point too about, you know, you're kind of following the baby, the baby's lead, that's baby love eating, um, but you're kind of following, you're letting them guide you. And I have seen situations with therapists where it's, you know, they're feeding the baby. Their goal is just get the food in the baby. How do we get the baby to eat? The parent just wants to feed the baby. And my goal is, well, no, this is feeding therapy. This is not, our goal today is not calories in. Our goal today is to help baby develop skills necessary to feed themselves and to chew and swallow properly, depending on where they're at or along that continuum. Um, and so I, I love how you kind of break down your hierarchy. I think that's going to be really useful to some, some of our listeners. Um, and and the tools that you use also. Um, I actually saw too that Talk Tools just came out with a insertion that you can put into a high chair. Um, that kind of gives you, gives the baby a little bit more um, stability. Support. Yeah, support. Thank you. Like ability to sit up, you know, with that better posture. And so it's, it's giving the support. I think it was primarily support on the sides, assuming that most of them have the back support already, but it does connect across the back to the yep. two sides and it can so like turn in. Yeah. So that it's basically giving them that, that good, you know, um, postural support, which is, I think, phenomenal. I think it's only like $40 on their website. And I just saw it. I think they just maybe launched it last week because I'm just seeing it now, unless I've been somehow missing it for years, but I'm pretty sure it's new. <laughs> um, and I, again, I don't make any money sharing these tools. I'm just sharing them because I think that, you know, it's nice. I'm going to go look into that chair that you mentioned, but um, I think for our family, sometimes, you know, they already have a high chair. They don't have a lot of resources and a $40 insert might be something that is more affordable to them that they can, you know, then take from one chair to the next chair too. Um, because I'm often rolling up towels <laughs> or rolling up washcloths and yeah, yeah. You know, and I think some families will figure out a way to tuck it underneath the cover of the, the seat. So it's always there, but then, you know, they shift, they kind of fall and it just, so this seems like a really nice solution if that's not working for you. Um, and then I also love how you, you shared about the kids meat feeder. That is my favorite. <laughs> I love that one. Um, super easy to clean and the kids seem to like it too. I love how it's clear and I like how it's um, the silicone mesh, not like yeah. not the material mesh. Cause I think a lot of my kids that I work with, especially with special needs, they, they touch that, that, you know, netting. regular mesh, the netting to their tongue. And they were like, not happening. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's so gaggy. I once did a yeah. conference actually with Lori that was given by Lori and we use those, we use like a cheesecloth and it made me gag. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And also I do purees in those silicone feeders. So it's directed by the baby. So they get rewarded because it comes out easily. And in my way, super messy. I always tell parents, this is going to be a mess. Yeah. And then once they get really strong and they can really get that puree out easily out of the kids meat, then I will move to banana avocado or something that takes more input to get it to come out. So yeah. that's the hierarchy I will use with the feeder as well. So you start off with rewarding them with a food that comes out easily. And then you move on to a food that they have to work a little bit harder to get it out. That makes sense. I like that. I like that. I, and I, I'm actually not familiar with the nature bond feeder. So I have to look into that one. But, um, but yeah, the spoons a little, you know, spoons with a hole in the middle. I think that those are also very easy for it's very rewarding. Like you said, yeah. you want to reward them and you want them to have quick success. Because if you want them to do hard things and build on those skills, they need to want to do that. And how do we do that? Well, we give them, you know, what they enjoy very quickly in the beginning so that we can then build on that and move beyond. So I think those are great. 
um, great tips, especially for, you know, newer people to the feeding therapy space. I think that those could be really helpful tips for them in their practice. Um, now, are there, I know we didn't really talk too much about bottles today, but, you know, we do get those babies who refuse a bottle or can't manage a bottle, um, only want to breastfeed and maybe, maybe they're very successful at breastfeeding, but they won't take a bottle and mom wants to go back to work or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, can we talk a little bit about how man how we manage breastfeeding babies that won't accept a bottle? Absolutely. And I, I love to talk about the subject because I see a lot on different sites of speech with speech pathologists. A lot of people don't understand that there is a phenomenon where there are some breastfeeding babies who will not take a bottle. And it does not mean that there's anything wrong with them. There's no, nothing structurally wrong with them. If you, if you can breastfeed, you can bottle feed. Breastfeeding is more difficult than bottle feeding. It's really a behavioral preference with these babies. So, and we never know which of those babies are going to be the ones that decide that they're never going to take a bottle ever again. So what I tell parents is, you know, I, I do watch those kids carefully because sometimes those babies who breastfeed well and won't accept a bottle, sometimes they are a little bit more sensitive and might be a little bit more on the sensory side. So we want to watch them from that perspective. But a lot of times it's really pretty normal a breast, when a breastfeeding baby decides that they're not going to accept a bottle. And what most parents will do is they will establish breastfeeding in the first couple of weeks and then they introduce one bottle and they're like, oh, the baby can do this. This is fine. And then then the day before they're going to return to work, when the baby is 12 weeks old, they decide to try the bottle again and the baby wants no part of it. And I get the frantic phone call of the mom who is losing her mind that her baby will not accept a bottle and the baby's going to be going to daycare and what am I going to do? And then that baby doesn't eat all day and sleeps at daycare and then is up all night nursing with mom. And you know what? That is can be a very typical behavior with a breastfeeding baby. So what I, what I teach parents to do to circumvent that is if you know you're going back to work at 12 weeks and once you introduce a bottle, you just introduce a very small amount. You don't have to waste your breast milk, but you just give the baby a very small amount every day or every other day just to kind of keep them in the game. Um, that's the best way to prevent it if you can, because again, most will present a bottle once and then not do it again until the day before they return to work. Uh, but if you do, you happen to be that person who introduces it once and then you have to go back to work and your baby's three or four months old and they won't accept a bottle. There are ways to work around it. I teach parents how to do some safe cup feeding. Um, I have a, a certain type of syringe that I use, a little bulb top to make sure we can feed those babies when the moms are not around. Sometimes if the mom is close to home, I, have, I will recommend the caregiver bring the baby to the mom. Whatever we can do until we can get the babies to solids. Sometimes I will introduce solids a little tiny bit earlier if it's a really tough situation and the mom is really struggling. But I think that speech pathologists really need to be aware that this is, can be a really typical phenomenon Phenomenon. It does not mean there's something wrong with the baby. I've had babies who are getting speech therapy or feeding therapy because they won't take a bottle. And sometimes we cannot turn this around. Sometimes we can never get a baby to take a bottle. They're just never going to do it. So I think that everyone has to understand about that phenomenon and not, and not think that there's necessarily something wrong with the baby. Although it could be indicative of a baby is a little bit more on the sensitive side, but most often not. It's a, just a typical behavior that we will see. I actually have a, an article that I wrote called Breastfeeding Babies Who Refuse to Accept the Bottle. It's on a, a website for a place called New Mother, New Baby, where I do consults. So I'll often have moms read that article, or I'll have therapists read that article so they can understand a little bit about this phenomenon and, and why it happens and how to manage it. Awesome. And I'll get that link for you so we can put that in the show notes as well. 
Um, because I think that would be really valuable for people because I think people go, oh my gosh, my baby can't take a bottle. What's wrong with my baby? Well, (laughs) your baby just doesn't want to take a bottle. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's really helpful. Um, The other thing I'll say too, is a lot of times when that happens, speech pathologists are saying, oh, it's a tongue tie. It's a tongue tie. And if you've got a baby who's been supporting their weight and, and gaining well and eating well for the first three months, and then they stop don't want to take a bottle. It's not, it's not necessarily tethered oral tissues. And then they start getting really medically interventional. And I feel like sometimes it's just, it's more behavioral and we just have to teach parents how to manage it versus being overly interventional. Mm, That's a good point. Yeah. Most, most of my kids come to me because they won't feed on anything. So actually I have not had that experience. Most, I'm, at least I'm not the one getting the phone calls for babies who won't transition to a bottle. I'm usually the ones that are like, please help us. My baby won't breastfeed or bottle feed or anything. And we're doing, like you said, some of those alternative feeding methods um, just to kind of until we can get them on, on one of those two sources. Um, but yes, that's... <laughs> It's, that's a good point. Cause I do think there's also, you know, obviously I am, I specialize in tethered oral tissues and I, I get people who come to my office and they have an assessment and I sometimes say, I, I don't see an issue. And they're like, Wait, really? Why, why was I referred to you? I'm like, do, do we want to find a problem? I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, granted most people who end up in my office have been to multiple other practitioners and they're coming to me to rule this out now because they're thinking that this might be the issue. Um, so a lot of the kids do have, you know, typically end up my office do typically have tethered oral tissues, you know, issues going on. They don't all need to have phrenectomies. We can often do, you know, other types of body work or oral motor work to help them gain function and, you know, put them within what we consider the range of typical function, normal function. Um, so, but yes, I think that's also a very great point to bring up, especially being that we talk a lot about tongue ties and lip ties and, uh, and all the ties on, on this podcast. Um, now you shared a lot of really great research papers and, um, articles that I, we will also put those in the show notes. Were there any in particular that you wanted to chat about or just want to include them? For- I do like the Brian Palmer uh, okay. um, reference that I put in there and talks about how breastfeeding shapes the palate and shapes the face. I don't think I gave you the reference for the hidden epidemic about the jaws. And, and that's a great book. I think people would love Uh, And I also have, I had given you some references about delaying introduction of lumpy foods and how that can impact babies feeding and accepting food. Um, And and they do find that babies who are are exposed to texture early on are less picky eaters. So Mm -hmm. I think that's that's an important thing. And let me see if there's anything else here. And obviously I love Jill Rapley's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, about baby led weaning and she has a 10th anniversary edition that came out. I actually have a little essay in there that I wrote. Jill and I became friends through this process because <laughs> I sent her a lot of my videos of babies with special needs doing baby led weaning in my modified way. And I think she's on board with that now because she feels she sees that they get to the same end result by, by using some of those bridge devices. And then obviously that breastfeeding and Down syndrome book is a great reference. It has a free download for parents. And there's a whole section on modified baby led weaning and just how to transition babies with special needs to the breast. Okay. And which book was it that you mentioned the, the choking versus gagging chart was in? That was in there. That's in the And I have a modified, I have a child directed feeding chapter in there and it is in there. And obviously um, Lori Overlin and Robin Merkel Walsh's book is phenomenal in terms of, you know, the pre-feeding hierarchy and all the things that you need to do to prepare babies to be safe and effective feeders. Awesome. Well, tons of great resources here. Thank you. Um, is there anything else, Jill, that we have not talked about today that you want to chat about? No, I, 
I would say too, just the importance of the body workers, you know, having, you know, having chiropractors and physical therapists and occupational therapists and all those body workers on your team. So you, you have people to refer to. And I would also say, make sure you really know who you're referring to, because sometimes you don't realize that the practitioners you're referring to don't have the knowledge that you think they do. So I think it's really important to visit them, see what they do, and that make sure that you're on the same page philosophically, because, you know, obviously what we, we all want the same thing. We want babies to be able to feed safely and effectively, and we, we want to have a whole team approach and make sure we're addressing everything that needs to be addressed in the right way to help moms and babies get to that point. Yeah, and I think um, I, I preach that all the time, that collaborative model. And also, I've talked about this in other episodes too, that it's so important that you know who you're referring to and you don't just refer to somebody because someone else says they're good. Now, I know like, you know, if they're located in a different state and this is a colleague that you trust and they're giving you a referral to send in a family somewhere, that's a very different story. But if these are local practitioners that you are working with all the time, like you should know what their facility work, whether they work out of their home or an office or, you know, a hospital or wherever they are. Like, I want to know, I want to see what it looks like. I want to know that where I'm referring somebody is clean and that it's held up to certain standards. Um, and that the office staff is friendly because I've had people come back to me and say, well, they, they seem like a great doctor, but the front office staff is like, they were, they were horrible. That's not a good experience for a parent, especially who's stressed, you know? So and that's also feedback that I've actually had from some of my, my colleagues that I work with. You know, they've said, if you ever get any feedback from your patients that you can share with us, like we are open to that. We are welcome to that. Now, thankfully, I will say that the providers that I work with all have front office staff that are absolutely lovely. Um, I, I go into a lot of their offices myself and just be just for various reasons, whether it's networking or like the dentist that I take my daughter to and I go to, we're both in appliances. So we're there frequently. Um, you know, I've taken, and I'm, I've always joked, if you want to hire somebody that, especially because I have a local private practice where I send people into people's homes, you know, I'm like, I don't hire somebody or do an interview without my child present because how you interact with my child tells me a lot about you. <laughs> and it's, I think it's a, it's a really great tool. And I'm like, I'm going to have to borrow someone else's children when mine get too old to do this. <laughs> I, I just had a, a bad situation where someone, a therapist that I was referring to, and I think she's maybe used to older, more older kids. And I just pre predominantly work with infants to three-year-olds and her, her, behavioral modification techniques were super harsh for a really, really sensory child. And the mom will not bring her child back there. And now I feel terrible because I really liked this therapist's approach and some of her ideas about sensory things and feeding, but this, this family was really scared away by her really intense behavioral modification. So yeah. we have to be careful of that because, you know, the last thing we need to do is send our sensory aversive kids to someone who's not being responsive to that. So I think that's a really important thing to know as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, and I know not everybody has the means to do it, but I also will take my children or myself for an appointment with those yeah. practitioners to experience it as a patient. And, you know, I can't in good faith refer to somebody unless I've had at least, I've been to their office, I've met with them, I've had discussions with them, and I understand their philosophy behind treatment and how they treat and, you know, um, and really, I, I love to see how they treat my children, <laughs> but, but that's how I found the craniosacral therapist that I referred to and the osteopath that I referred to and the dentist that I referred to for both peds and, you know, adults. And, um, you know, we have various dentists that refer to us in the area and I've gone to their offices and I've 
I look to see, you know, well, what equipment are you using to do those phrenectomies? And what is your, you know, are you just releasing everybody or are you sending them for myofunctional therapy first or for an, at least an evaluation to determine if function can be gained without doing this release, okay. you know? So, and that's obviously that applies to little ones and adults as well, because I do treat adults as well for myofunctional um, issues, but you know, yes, I think there's a lot to be said about knowing your team, building that team and just get out of your comfort zone, go ask them to come check out their office, you know, get in there, take a look, sit down, have a conversation, bring them a fruit basket or some chocolate <laughs> and coffee and, you know, have a five minute conversation. It doesn't have to be a whole big thing. It could be a five minute conversation, but just get in there and build that team, but build that team and know that you can trust where you're sending people. I think that's a big, big message. So yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jill. This has been amazing. A lot of great tips have been shared today. And I think that, um, I think it'll be refreshing for people to hear, especially feeding therapists to hear about your approach to modifying baby led weaning for our ch children with special needs. Um, and how, you know, baby led weaning is actually truly meant to be approached because I think there's a lot of, like we've talked about, there's a lot of misconceptions online and, and on Facebook and social media, um, blessing and a curse, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> gets the information out there to some degree, but then there's a lot of just, you know, interpretation amongst people of how they've applied it and how it worked for them, which may not be how, you know, the creators of, of baby led weaning intended for it to be applied and how we as therapists know we need to modify it for children who just can't quite follow that traditional model. Um, so thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I often share with Jill things that I see on social media about her method and she, she finds it very entertaining. <laughs> I am sure. I am sure. Oh, well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll chat soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.